you're listening to a special episode of On the Record Offscript. Every other week, we air a special episode of the Offscript podcast. Special episodes have been some of the most popular episodes of the podcast, where we share everything from extended interviews to live talks given at Springtide events to talks given at events that are not Springtide events, but where the organizers of those events have shared the tape uh, with us for broader distribution. While we don't stick to tape from the interviews with former MLAs for the special episodes, we try to stick to the spirit of the podcast, content that is educational, thought-provoking, with speakers who don't sound too scripted in the talking point sense of the word. So today we're sharing excerpts from an event called All for One Nova Scotia? Perspectives on the Ivanhoe Report, held by the McKechnie Institute for Public Policy and Governance as part of their Policy Matters speaker series. Today you'll hear talks from two of the four speakers from that event, which is just an excerpt from the larger discussion. You can access the full discussion on YouTube by clicking on the link in the show notes uh, in this podcast description or find the link to that page on our website at springtide.ngo slash se29 because this is special episode number 29. The first speaker you'll hear is Karen Foster. Karen is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Tahazie University and the author of Productivity and Prosperity, an historical sociology of productivist thought. The second speaker you'll hear is Danny Graham, who regular listeners to this podcast will know from his time as an MLA and former Liberal Party leader and now CEO at Engage Nova Scotia. First up, Karen Foster. Um, so uh, thanks, everyone, for, uh, for welcoming me here today and the rest of the, uh, the panelists. On the one hand, this is an awkward premise. I've been invited to reflect on a report and a coalition on a panel that includes uh, a coalition member and one of the report's key movers. Um, on the other hand, I think it speaks to a healthy intellectual community that prioritizes and supports the free, respectful expression and exchange of ideas. Um, plus, my response to the, the 1NS uh, coalition and the Ivany report is the same response that I have to most discourse about economic development in Nova Scotia and the rest of the Atlantic region and actually the world. The coalition and report just happened to be in this instance a lightning rod for critique of much wider economic development and political discourse that deserve to be questioned by bright minds like yours. Uh, so I am going to be critical. I think that is that's uh, that's what I'm here to do today. Um, uh, you know, I, I I probably couldn't do the the task of governing, um, but I am able to critique it, and I think that's kind of the point of this academic and and uh, policy interchange. So I'm going to focus on three targeted critiques that I tried to seed with the readings that I suggested to the class. Um, the first critique is a basic sociological critique, and it's that the report and the coalition documents tend to individualize um, social problems. So that is, as C. Wright Mills would put it, they confuse the personal troubles of milieu with the public issues of social structure. The report does this in its repeated emphasis on attitudes. Uh, coming at this as a sociologist, the focus on attitudes and attitudes about economic development in particular, particular graded me more than anything. Uh, I am so glad that the 1NS dashboard doesn't measure progress on attitude change, and I think that on that one it deserves praise. Um, but the report was so unequivocal about the primacy of attitudes to the point that I am surprised that the coalition doesn't have an attitude meter. Um, so, for example, from the report, they point to the, the, uh, the lack of shared vision and commitment to economic growth and renewal as the single most uh, significant impediment to change and renewal. Uh, we do not, as a province, share broad agreement on the need for economic growth. 
Virtually everyone sees the need for population growth and greater wealth generation, but the practical strategies to achieve these are controversial. Uh, it points to a, quote, lack of solidarity as a province, um, saying that this undermines constructive dialogue about our future and makes us, us a more difficult and risk-averse place to do business and build communities. So I'll offer just a few disconnected thoughts on these claims from a sociological perspective. So the first um, uh, thought is that attitudes come from somewhere. People's attitudes, like their behaviors, beliefs, and values, do not just arise willy-nilly. When I read the Ivanim report, though, what I see is what a sociologist might call a vulgar functionalist rendering of society, where our economic stagnation is blamed on our inability to play our respective roles, so mainly as workers and communities that are open for business, and accept the dominant ideology and economic order. I don't buy that rendering of society. It's too simplistic. It doesn't acknowledge power and inequality and the validity of people's situated understandings of the world and economies around them. That's not to say that there aren't good and bad attitudes and that there aren't reasons to think about people's attitudes and attitude change. Um, It is just to say that it's not as simple as telling people that what they think is wrong. From a sociological perspective, the emphasis on the need for consensus and shared broad agreements is problematic because social change is probably always, at some level, the product of conflict between different ideas, values, and goals. And so imagining that a consensus will emerge and we'll all march toward a brighter future um, is unlikely. Whatever happens in Nova Scotia will be, at least in part, the result of one worldview edging out another, which will not die, but will reorganize and reconstitute into something partly new. So relatedly, it's perplexing to see both sides of divisive issues in the report presented, um, followed by the conclusion that the disagreement itself constitutes a barrier to progress. So, for example, um, there's a passage about um, resource extraction, uh, extractive industries in rural economies. It says that some participants emphasized the need to renew, modernize, and in some cases expand these traditional sectors, while others described them as sunset industries or felt that there was too little room to develop them without unacceptable damage to ecosystems. There is no follow-up discussion about what we should do, just that the two sides must come together and, I presume, uh, reach a consensus. But on what? What would a consensus between two seemingly irreconcilable views look like? Uh, Is it not a government's job to lead toward one or the other with a clear vision? Unless I'm missing something, uh, the, the commission or the report essentially say to groups they believe are diametrically opposed, you figure out and then we'll do what you want. So there is then an avoidance of um, ethical questions. The problem is that you can't eliminate or sidestep ethical questions. You always end up taking a side. And in this case, the side, I fear, is with whatever grows the economy and makes us more competitive because it is in the interests of powerful people and groups to do things that grow the economy and adhere to notions of competitiveness. Um, This leads me to a, a second critique. The second is that the report and the coalition both uh, assume, that is, they take for granted, that economic growth in the form of productivity growth and export development is necessary and that it improves living standards and life in general. And yet, economies do not need to grow consistently and at a high rate in order to work well and to deliver reasonable standards of living to their inhabitants. In fact, if you make a chart showing productivity growth over the last century and map that alongside gains uh, or or a chart of median wages, you'll see that after rising together for decades, the two 
uh, parted ways and productivity has continually increased while wages have slowed and even stagnated. So the link between economic growth and prosperity is not a scientific fact. Um, I'm, I'm happy to see Engage Nova Scotia is, um, you know, prioritizing the quality of life um, uh, survey and the emphasis on quality of life. There is a spectrum of theory and belief on this matter, on this question of economic growth, but governments almost always prioritize growth above a range of other equally important things. It's virtually impossible in the present political discourse to say, maybe we don't need to grow the economy. It's heretical, but it is valid. Uh, it's a valid question. We have to question the assumption that ec economic growth is necessary. And at the very least, this discursive wiggle room would allow us to be growth agnostic, which means refusing to let economic growth be the deciding factor in policy development and governance decisions. A more specific problem is um, the emphasis in the report and throughout our political discourse on export-led growth. So even if we seed the matter of economic growth and say, okay, we want the economy to grow, there is more than one way to grow an economy. The most straightforward way is to bring in new money, and the strategy we reach for first to bring in new money is to sell more exports. However, it's not exports per se that are the most important to the health of a local economy, but the local trade balance, the total value of exports minus the value of imports. So greater, greater exports can improve a trade balance, but so too can fewer imports. And reducing imports delivers additional benefits, can make communities, regions, and provinces, and entire countries more self-reliant and insulate them from the uncontrollable and unpredictable economic shocks that dog international markets. A key problem with the Ivany Report, if we accept these critiques, is that its goals revolve almost entirely around an export-led growth model. So there's little concern about local control over local economic development. Um, that might be why there's not much talk about cooperatives. Uh, there's little concern with meeting local demand with local production. And this is especially problematic in a place like Nova Scotia that has, for over a century, been the poor dog wagged by the tail of the global marketplace and to what ends. Um, I don't mean that we need to stop exporting or caring about exports altogether, but we need to, to, even just for an intellectual exercise, flip our priorities and think about ways to meet local demand for products and services with local production. Um, that's easier said than done, of course, but saying it is one step toward doing it. Uh, a third related critique mirrors the second. Um, the report and the coalition assume, that is, they take for granted, the notion of competitiveness. Competitiveness, like the need for growth and export-led growth in particular, is an assumption. It's a hegemonic discourse, as Gillian Bristow puts it, and it's allowed to be used in policy development without explanation. It doesn't need to be theorized or argued for. It can be assumed a priori or in advance. So it's like gravity or the boiling point of water, except without any of the scientific certainty. The Ivany Report wields the notion of competitiveness haphazardly, and I get the impression that this reflects either an attempt to reconcile differences of view among the many actors involved in the report's production or a lack of reflection on one of the report's central concepts. Um, so to wit, throughout, there is a tension between cooperation and comp competitiveness at the level of firms, industries, regions, and economies. But I get the message, only cooperation, not competition, among local communities themselves. So why is this a problem? If being competitive is used as a justification for all manner of policies and actions, we ought to know what it means and whether or not it's a legitimate goal. Bristow's point is that we don't really know what it means, and it probably isn't a legitimate goal. 
Does being more competitive make us a better society? Does it make life better? Does it make some people very rich and subject others to unstable work at insufficient wages in markets where the cost of living rises faster than most incomes? Um, it depends on the definition of competitiveness, and yet few in policy circles are explicit about their definition or whether it's justified by any evidence. Um, I think this is an extremely concerning point uh, in our context, and uh, I've chosen attitudes, growth, and competitive competitiveness, but there are a number of concepts in the report uh, that deserve scrutiny in the spirit of clarifying where it is that we want to go, in, with whose interest in mind, and how we can get there. Thank you. The Ivany Commission is now sort of, uh, for anybody related to public policy in Nova Scotia, iconically associated with uh, Ray, uh, Ivany, and uh, Ray would be as uh, another humble Cape Bretoner, first person to say that that's rather overdone. He would rather not have the kind of attention uh, that has been associated with his name for this particular work, but there's really no turning back from the place that we're at right now, and it will forever be known as the Ivany Report. Even the 1NS Coalition Report that uh, I was a part of, that Ray was not at all a part of, got rolled into this. Um, but more to the point... Um, this initiative that I think woke Nova Scotians up in a way that they hadn't been awakened at any other time began under the leadership of Premier Dexter and uh, his team, uh, his staff. Um, and uh, of the people who he assigned to get the work done and to put the report together, Rick Williams was by far the most important person to uh, make that happen. So... Uh, the exercise of putting the framework around this and understanding how this needs to move forward has Rick Williams' fingerprints uh, all over it, and uh, I think uh, too, uh, too rarely has he been recognized uh, for the incredible service that he's done for uh, the people of Nova Scotia. As you heard from him, uh, it started with the Savoie Report. Not many people talk about that. The Ivany Report was really the wake-up call. It was February of three and a half years ago. Uh, yeah, three and a half years ago, February, uh, that down by uh, Pier 21, um, Ray and the other commissioners gathered. Some of you might have been present at the time. And um, I remember beforehand Ray saying that this is going to be about a two-week wonder. Um, there won't be many legs that sort of flow from this. He could not have imagined that uh, this report would have uh, sort of stuck in the consciousness of uh, dialogue uh, in Nova Scotia the way that it has. It was followed by the 1NS coalition work. I like to describe the difference between those. One was uh, the diagnosis, uh, provided a, a diagnosis with, with its 19 goals and its 12 or so game changers. Uh, and then uh, a report was prepared uh, called the, the Playbook, and it, in a seven-chapter writing, uh, spoke about the prescription, if you will, of what might be possible in uh, those areas. Each report has, uh, I think, tremendous merit. The approach that they've taken uh, were somewhat different in the way that they were written, but the principles that sort of anchored them, I would suggest, uh, was the same. The things that distinguished, uh, we in Nova Scotia have been writing reports about uh, the future of the province since the 1930s. And every one of them, until this report, spoke about uh, the need for us, the urgent need for us to pay attention to our economic woes and our population challenges. 
Um, this report, however, was uh, arrived with Nova Scotians in an entirely different way. And I'd like to share with you just a few things that I think made it different. One was that it was written in a particularly candid kind of way. Uh, as Maritimers, we know that if you call somebody out and you're not right, uh, you might get bet up. Um, but if you call somebody out, including ourselves, and you're right, people recognize the truth, and they will support and protect the truth. And the candid way that this called us all to be accountable, not just public leaders, uh, but everyone to be accountable for our future, I think set this apart. It was, it was written in plain language. And it was written, again, not just to government, but to all Nova Scotians, and said that this isn't a responsibility for just a few people. This is a responsibility for everyone to uh, dive into. Thirdly, um, uh, it was delivered uh, fundamentally by Ray. And for anyone who knows Ray Ivany, uh, you'd appreciate the level of integrity that he carries to the work that he would plainly say is never always right, but you know that it comes from a place of him believing deeply and for the right reasons in the future of, uh, of our province. And lastly, here's the thing that I think uh, uh, deserves the greatest amount of attention, and it, it's, it's resulted in uh, me uh, doing much of the work that I do right uh, uh, today. Uh, as Kevin said, I'm with an organization called Engage Nova Scotia. We actually started before the Ivany Commission was, uh, came about. Uh, it was just a ragtag group of passionate amateurs stuck together with duct tape and chicken wire trying to sort of aspire to a better Nova Scotia. And along comes the Ivany Commission that I think put uh, some boosters under the work that we were doing. And the boosters came in the third area of uh, thinking around uh, this report. The Ivany Commission report didn't just talk about our economic and demographic challenges. It talked about our culture and our attitude. It said that the psychological barriers of distrust, division, and discouragement are just as important as raising new capital or finding new investments. And that was a fundamental shift in the way that we started to see each other. It so happened that um, this was anchored more deeply in the coalition work where it said these are the three main pillars of what we need to be talking about. The economy, demography, and what they called attitude or culture. And that third area is the work is related to the work that uh, we at Engage Nova Scotia uh, want to do. And I just want to touch on uh, what that is and its relevance to that third leg and then just make a quick comment on how I think we're doing. So our aspiration is to, at, at Engage, is to make sure that more Nova Scotians uh, understand our opportunities, our advantages, and the hurdles in front of us. And that more people are stepping up to improve our economy and the quality of life in this province. And thirdly, that if they're going to do that, they are more collaborative, inclusive, and adaptive to change. That could sound fuzzy to some people. Um, but it's squarely anchored in those two reports, and it's squarely anchored, I think, in our understanding of how we as Nova Scotians have been an obstacle to the future that we want to have for each other. So uh, the kinds of work that we do uh, could be one of the most visible things that we do is host uh, and coordinate Share Thanksgiving, which I would encourage everyone, whether you are a long-standing Nova Scotian or a newcomer to Nova Scotia, to sign up for uh, this year. It involves Nova Scotians opening their doors to newcomers 
uh, to have a Thanksgiving meal with them so that people sink their roots into this province and stay for longer periods of time. More I could say on that, but I'll try to respect the time. A second pillar of the work that we uh, are doing relates to the notion of public engagement. We believe that the trust uh, vertically between government and citizens has been declining, lots of data to support that, but also in this time of social media, laterally between sectors, we're all falling into our echo chambers of truth and our ability to trust each other and to work collaboratively laterally to, together has declined substantially. So how do we go about fixing that? Well. Tomorrow, for example, our organization will be working with four municipalities in the Annapolis Valley, helping to strengthen their understanding of commitment to and tools with engaging the public in a way that they welcome them into the future of uh, their region of the province. And finally, one of the things that we're really excited about is the establishment of uh, Canada's first province-wide index and survey on quality of life. Uh, this idea of GPI Atlantic that some of you would be familiar with that Ron Coleman pioneered in this region is something that, it's an idea that has come. And when we presented, when we talked to Ray after the report about in addition to the economic and demographic issues, we may have an advantage here in Nova Scotia that we haven't paid enough attention to for a long period of time. And it's called our quality of life. So if we treasure it, let's measure it. And let's make sure that uh, we as a province are starting to put our shoulder to the wheel on the things that will really make a difference uh, to people's lives. We asked 1,000 Nova Scotians on a scale of 1 to 10, two questions. Success should be measured by growing our economy. We got a strong response. Success should be measured on improving our quality of life across every demographic, every geographic region of this province. Quality of life is a substantial and higher measure for them of success. So. Uh, we're excited about the work that we're doing. Uh, we think that it relates directly to the uh, 1NS aspirations. Uh, if I were to give a snapshot of, of what, I th uh, what I think about how we're doing, it would essentially be that uh, the jury's out. This is a 10-year project that uh, uh, we're being asked for. And what I'm most encouraged with, as I think about the Creative Destruction Lab last night, the ways that the ocean sector and... Uh, universities are collaborating, that there is, it appears, a greater willingness for people to work effectively across sectors to make things happen in a way that I feel that we haven't done at any time uh, in our previous history. There are some indicators on a dashboard that, that has been created that suggest that uh, some things are moving in the right direction and other things aren't. Uh, again, the jury is out. Uh, I have more comments about what of the goals, whether the goals are arbitrary somewhat or whether they're real, uh, but they're important uh, nonetheless. Thanks very much. That is this week's special episode of the Offscript podcast. Thanks again to the McKechnie Institute for sharing the audio from this event to use in this podcast. And you can find that full discussion with Karen, Danny, and the other speakers that participated at springtide.ngo slash SE29, where we've got the full show notes for this podcast and a link to the full discussion, which you can watch on YouTube. Also, there you will find a link to all of the other events happening as part of the McKechnie Institute fall speaker series called Policy Matters. 
Stay tuned next Wednesday for another full episode of the Offscript Podcast. If you haven't subscribed to the Offscript Podcast yet, make sure to do so. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever it is you find your podcasts. You can subscribe to email updates about the podcast by going to the page for this episode, springtide.ngo se 29 and entering your email address to subscribe. 